Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein, and I want to welcome to today's show my friend and fellow writer from The Daily Beast, Laura Bradley. Welcome, Laura. Hey, thanks for having me. So you are here because today we are counting down our top five funniest performances of the year. And this is something that I've been writing on the website for the past few years. It's actually sort of part of what uh, inspired the idea to do this podcast in the first place as I was making these lists of, of comedy people that I love. And I was like, I want to talk to these people on a podcast. So that's sort of how this all started. Um, but what I wanted to do, and we haven't done it on the podcast before, is really go through these lists and and talk about the year in comedy, which was this year, a particularly strange one, I think. I mean, yeah, new platforms, Jim Carrey, Joe Biden, lots to talk <laughs> about this year. Yeah, um, not probably the funniest year, but still a lot of comedy in the year. Possibly one of the weirdest years. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, as you said, there's there's been sort of new ways of doing comedy this year, I think, especially with Zoom, where, you know, stand-up comedy moved out of the clubs and onto Zoom, which is something that I've talked to a lot of my guests about over this past year and how strange that's been and how some people handle it really well and some people hate it and don't like doing it at all. And then there's also people doing outdoor shows and drive-in shows, and that's been very weird. And then there's also, you know, something like TikTok, where people are are using this new platform in new ways as well. I guess to start, are there are there things that happened this year in terms of in those worlds that really stood out to you and these new forms of comedy? I mean, I definitely was interested immediately with Sarah Cooper, like I think the rest of the world. Um just the entire sort of lip sync with the face, just, you know, we've all seen it. I don't need to explain, but definitely that. Well, we are definitely going to get to Sarah Cooper in this conversation. Um, but one thing I wanted to touch on before we delve into our list, when I was thinking about the year in comedy, there were a lot of things that I really enjoyed that are sort of comedy adjacent or comedy-esque, but weren't didn't really make me laugh. And so when I was looking at like other people's lists of the top specials of the year, I think number one on a lot of those lists is Dave Chappelle's 846 special, which was incredible when it came out. And it's, you know, him talking very frankly and kind of off the cuff in a lot of ways about George Floyd's killing. But it's not funny, I think most people would agree. And it's not really trying to be funny. No, definitely not. I mean, I don't even know how you would begin to try to make that funny. Yeah, um, and, it, and it was a challenge that I think most of the late night hosts also didn't even try. They kind of turned very serious for, for a few weeks there. Yeah, it's interesting. I think this year we've really sort of, there's a lot of talk always, especially in these Trump times of sort of comedy as a source of catharsis. But I think this year sort of uh, took that idea a little bit further, like you said, with specials like Dave Chappelle's and also like Michaela Cole, I May Destroy You, just uh, even things like I Hate Susie, just these explorations of sort of trauma and anger and rage that, 
you know, in some cases, like I would say, I hate Susie, like there's shades of comedy to it. But I think the sort of focus is on the relationship between tension and catharsis without necessarily an eye for how many laughs are we going to get in here? Yeah, definitely. Um, another one is, uh, I don't know if you saw Nate, the uh, the special on Netflix that Natalie Palamides did. Not yet, but I feel like I it's have wild. to. It's like, I, I'm not even going to try to explain it. Or it's like one of those things that you just have to watch because it's it's wild. And it's also sort of about consent and, um, you know, sexual assault and all these things. And it's done in a very sort of outrageous style. And it, it is funny. It didn't, it, it didn't make me laugh as a lot of as 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 much as some other things did this year, I would say. And then the other one that I wanted to mention that is someone. This was actually uh, the last person I interviewed in person before the pandemic started was a comedian named Whitmer Thomas. This wasn't on the podcast. It was for a, a profile piece that I did in the Daily Beast that you can check out there. Um, and he did this special on HBO called The Golden One which I described as sort of the first emo comedy special uh, that's happened. And because he, there's musical element to it, but it's it's very emotional comedy in a way that can be very funny, but it's just super dark. And it's it's a lot about how his his mom died of uh, alcoholism and the, and the song that sort of becomes the anthem of the show is Party to Death, where he talks about his, his mother partying to death. And it's like, another thing that's just super dark and it, it felt like that was all pre-pandemic but it felt very in that same vein as a lot of the stuff that that's come out uh, since that is another thing that's sort of worth mentioning here is that so much of the work that sort of became lauded as timely was actually made before the pandemic it's this interesting i feel like we've had a lot of synchronicity this year uh with comedy performance and tv especially that has touched on the moment without ever having been written for the moment uh, which I think is very interesting. And then, of course, there's going to be that weird thing where all the stuff that comes out next year that was written during this time when maybe we're all ready to move on. I don't know. Oh, yeah. No, we're still going to be drowning in pandemic-themed media, <laughs> even after we are all very ready to never talk about this again. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, well, let's get into our our top five. So we each made so we each made actually top tens, which uh, will be on the website. And uh, so you'll have to go to the website to get our full list. But we're going to talk through our top fives on this podcast. And why don't you go first and uh, and share your your number five? My number five is James Adomian in uh, the DC Harley Quinn animated series. And I feel like I should first mention that like most you know successful animated series, the thing about this show is that all of the casting is just so good and everybody is turning in these crazy performance. Kaylee Cuoco is great as Harley. Jason Alexander has this really wonderful sort of bittersweet arc this uh, season as Cyborgman. You've got Alfred Molina as Mr. Freeze. Like the list is just endless. But for me, uh, James Adomian as Bane really stands out just because I should go ahead and admit immediately I am a mark for sort of these earnest, doofy characters. And <laughs> yeah. that is exactly what this take on Bane is. He's just like he's in the league. He, uh, he's in league with all these demons, but. He's in league with all these villains, but he's not actually sort of a member of their circle. They very much sort of cast him out and don't take him seriously. You know, he doesn't remember the word for explosives. He calls them explosions. Like, just he's a joke <laughs> constantly. And I think the episode that really stuck out for me this season that I just pretty much beginning to end was laughing uh, I believe is titled, There's No Place to Go But Down. 
and without sort of spoiling it, basically Harley and Poison Ivy end up in the pit, which we all know Bane, you know, his origin story, the pit, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we've all seen the Dark Knight Rises, but um, he's instead of making it this sort of punitive prison, he's turned it into this like rehabilitational facility where like, you know, these villains are learning like how to paint and doing crafts <laughs> to redirect their anger. And he has these rules like you have to make your bed every day and he's lurking over people like you didn't make your bird <laughs> you know just you know offering vision boards being like i have inspo and it just it is endlessly funny to hear the voice to begin with but just sort of this juxtaposition of this big guy this big wrestler and then you know just this complete doofiness i mean like i said i'm a mark for this but it completely works for me and that episode in particular is just so good while I was born in darkness, here at Panyoduro North, we're bringing people into the light. We try to cultivate positive thinking in the pit. Teach our guests to redirect aggressive energies like maiming and killing into something more productive. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that I have not. This is a show that I haven't seen yet, but you are definitely making me want to watch it. Uh, but I'm a huge James Adomian fan, and he is just like the king of voices at this point. And I feel like has not gotten as much due as he deserves and has not probably gotten to do as much as he should have. And this is obviously a great platform for him. Um, he also, his political impressions are hilarious as well. And he had a, a podcast this year where he was doing a lot of, of that stuff and uh, his Bernie Sanders and his Seb Gorka um, people might know um, from Chapo Trap House. Uh, is, he's got a lot of acclaim there as well, but he's really, really funny. And and yeah, I, I want to check this show out now. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I'm not sure how familiar I was. Like, I'm just not sure how much I'd interacted with his work before. I'd known that he'd done the Bernie Sanders impression, particularly uh, on tour uh, with Tony Tamanik, yeah, who was who was just on this podcast a few weeks ago on election day, and he's yeah he does Trump, and they did the the Trump versus Bernie tour, which sadly got cut short uh, from the pandemic as well. They were supposed to do a lot more cities, right? So for me, it's kind of the opposite effect where I wasn't super familiar with the other work, and now his work as Bane is making me just want to look up everything he's ever done. Well, that's an example of something that works really well in the audio medium. So we you can you can hear him do the voice. Something that really does not work well in the audio medium is Sarah Cooper, who we mentioned because. Because her work is very visual uh, in the sense that she's just lip syncing Trump uh, for the most part. And, you know, she's someone that we, you know, you mentioned earlier and you actually interviewed her like really early on, right? In this, in her fame. Relatively. I think it would have been May or maybe April. Yeah, it was relatively early on. I, I feel mean, like that was before she was on my radar so much when I when I saw that you interviewed her. Um, so that must have been what, what was it like talking to her in that in those early days? I mean, it was really cool. I just remember the main thing that I remember is talking to her about the fact that she has a sister who is a healthcare worker. So for her, you know, this whole pandemic is really something serious, and obviously she brings levity to it. But I think the prime motivator behind all of this is really to sort of have a sort of a viral lower stakes way to talk about this in a way. So much of our political discourse is incendiary. But if you listen to what he's saying with these ridiculous voice or ridiculous faces she's making, it becomes very sort of decharged in a way that you can just see how ridiculous all of it is. That's another thing I remember her mentioning is that the sort of source of the comedy to her is that Trump gets away with saying all these things that she as a woman of color 
really can't say. She can't act like a blowhard in the way that he does. She can't throw her weight around like that and just, you know, treat people like shit. So (laughs) I think, you know, the source of the comedy is seeing her do that. And then also just the lack of sort of, she emphasized that she's never trying to sort of look like Trump, right? Like there's never the Trump makeup like we see with so many of these impressions. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, and I should say, I, I forgot to mention, she is my number five uh, funniest performance of the year in sort of across everything she's done. You know, obviously, the, I think the videos and the, the first videos that she was doing on TikTok and then they, I don't know, I'm, I'm not on TikTok, but I saw them on Twitter and, and Instagram and everything were really sort of the high point of what she's done. And I think it's been a little bit hard to top herself in that way because she kind of hit on something so well and then she did come out with this netflix special did you get to see her netflix special everything is fine i did did i make it through the yeah, whole thing that's a good it's question, a separate uh, question. Yeah, i'm sorry i had i had some trouble with it as well i think there's a lot of really smart stuff in it and it's very weird and i think it probably would reward repeat viewings, but I do think it's challenging. Um, But there was just the one sketch that stood out to me. And I think a lot of people was this recreation of the Access Hollywood tape that she did with uh, Helen Mirren as Billy Bush, which that alone, if she had just released that, I think as her Netflix special was like a five minute thing. I think it would have been received even better. (laughs) Yeah, I think for me, and I actually do want to go back and revisit it, if not solely because of the fact that I am just a completist to a fault and I can't start something without finishing it. I know, I have Um, that problem too. But it's a weird thing, right, where you tune in sort of with this set of expectations based on what you've seen. And I think um, I was also probably like, I think it was like late at night. It was sort of just like not it was one of those things where I'm like, all right, I'm not in the I'm not in the space to engage with this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't really uh, process it for all that it is. (laughs) No, I'm like, this is for another time when I'm more awake. And there's some other, she branches out from Trump in that she does some of like Kellyanne Conway and Ivanka and stuff. And there's some, there's some interesting stuff there. Um, And she got a ridiculous number of um, guest stars, but it was also like all done during quarantine. And so there's some, some limitations put on it because of that as well, I think, which, which made it tough. But I'm, I'm just really curious to see where she goes next. I know she's like gotten a ton of opportunities from what I've heard in terms of like making new shows and, and working on pilots and things. Um, so I think it should be interesting to see where she goes. She's done a lot of these. Um, she started doing some videos where it's actually her speaking and she's sort of playing like, I think in one, she's playing like a the Trump lawyer, like the mentor of one of Trump's lawyers. And she's doing those kinds of things, which are different than the lip syncing and allows her to use her own voice in a comedic way, in a, in a new way. Yeah. And I mean, even before she started doing the TikTok videos, she'd already done comedy books. Like I think she does have a lot of range and I'm really excited to see sort of what she does with it and where she takes it. Yeah. Uh, And maybe when it's not all about Trump will be helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All that talk about Trump being good for comedy. We've, we've all, (laughs) we've all talked about how ridiculous that was. So it'll be fun when there's sort of a less, uh, gravitationally centric force for comedy, I guess, to put that very circuitously. Yeah. So let's move on. Let's go to your, uh, your number four. That would be Ayo Adabiri in Big Mouth. She actually started halfway through the season. We don't, so for the first, or I think for the first few episodes, it's Jenny Slate still. And then the episode where we finally meet Ayo's take on Missy is in the Halloween episode Mm-hmm. where yeah. Missy is sort of having this crumbling sense of self issue 
and then constructs a sort of mosaic Missy out of all of her different selves. And it's that that Io first starts voicing and then she takes over the character from there. And I think you know, this year has brought a lot of conversations about white people voicing black characters, which there has been there have been discussions about white people voicing people of color before, like with Bojack Horseman, uh, Diane Nguyen. Uh, but this year really felt like across the board, a lot of shows started taking it seriously. Family Guy, Simpsons, uh, Central Park all recast various characters. And I think the thing that struck me about Big Mouth was that the voice transition is first of all, completely seamless. Um, Io does an incredible job. But beyond that, I think it really elevates the comedy in the sense that we really are able to delve into Missy's identity a lot deeper. One of the things I found really interesting was reading that, and I mean, Io was actually already on board as a writer for season five, but apparently her voicing the character also, I think I was reading in the Hollywood, Hollywood Reporter today, Jack Knight was saying that he wrote the episode about code switching and he specifically felt unable to do that because now we have a black performer playing this character. You're sort of able to go there in a way that you can't when you have a white person voicing it, which even Jenny Slate gets at sort of with these offhanded jokes this season where they're kind of tiptoeing around the N word. And she's like, I can't say that. And her cousins are like, yeah, you can. And she's like, oh, no, I really oh, can't actually, say I it. Really can, yeah. I really can't. I know. I thought that was funny, too. I was I was watching this new season sort of and I didn't know when the switch was going to happen. And originally I went into it thinking that AO had already taken over for Jenny Slate. But then I was pretty sure at the beginning that it was still Jenny. And then they yes, yeah, so they were kind of commenting on it like that it is really interesting and i and then it's it's i think it's it was an important change that they made and i think jenny has spoken really you know frankly and and honestly about it i will miss her on the show as well because i think she's so funny as well i think I, it'll be interesting to see if she starts playing more other characters on the show which i think she's done a little bit of and i would imagine they want to keep her around yeah they've said that she'll continue voicing other characters uh so at least we're we're not going to lose her completely but it is really fascinating how seamless that transition was and just how thoughtfully done it was. I think it's also really striking that rather than just have Io sort of re-record the lines as performed by Jenny, because they record the lines and then they do the animation. So all the animation was already based on what Jenny had done. So rather than make Io do that for the whole season, they sort of scrapped a decent amount of what they had, I think, toward the back half and let her really make the character her own. And it shows, you know, we're getting so much deeper into a character who from the jump, Missy has been my favorite, just, you know, as a quiet nerdy girl, there's mm -hmm. a lot of common ground we don't need to get into, <laughs> but like, you know, I think it's really refreshing to see Missy fleshed out more fully. And I think this character is only going to become more fascinating as the show goes on, both because of the sort of writing opportunities and also just because of what Io will be able to bring to this role and already has. Totally. What'd you, what'd you think of this uh, fourth season overall? What was your uh, feelings about it? I liked it again as an anxious person. Tita the anxiety <laughs> mosquito yes. really spoke to me. Bamford, <laughs> killing it. We've, we've all had nightmare camp experiences, or I should say, you know, some of us have yeah. had nightmare camp experiences. <laughs> and I think overall it was really great. The only episode that I kind of really went back and forth on whether or not it worked for me was the 9-11 episode. Not because I found it particularly offensive, but just A, because it's a Coach Steve episode, which I just, I can't. He's fine, but there's always more <laughs> of him than I need. Really? For me, yeah. And then also just the fact that, you know, it's not that it's offensive, but I do think like, even now, if you're going to go for 9-11 episode, it's got to be really funny. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think yeah. for me, again, the fact that it was a Coach Steve episode, I was just kind of like, this is never going to rise to the level of funny that I'm going to require. Yeah. For me, the, the future episode kind of overshadowed the 9-11 episode in terms of like ambitious uh, things that they did. I really liked that one where they yeah. were showing us that the future was very dystopian and, and terrifying, uh, but very funny as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, that one was a complete blast, which is why, you know, I should clarify this, you know, by no means did this ruin the season, which I overall really enjoyed. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I just had, so we just had Jason Manzukis on the podcast last week and uh, I was remarking to him that he, his, his adult, the adult version of Jay has his beard, which I quite enjoyed as well. Honestly, Jay and Lola, iconic couple. Yeah. Just Seriously. please give, like if we were ever to do a spinoff, which I'm not a second spinoff, I suppose yeah, I should say. I they're, they're already doing one. Yeah. On the Hormone right. Monsters. Yeah. The HR. Yeah. But uh I don't know. That would also be its own funny thing. Uh, That's not a pitch, but I would enjoy more (laughs) of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So let's go to my number four, um, which is a performance by someone who I don't think any of us had heard of before this year as well. And that's Maria Bakalova in Borat's subsequent movie film. So she plays uh, Borat's daughter, Tutar, in the movie. And this was this was probably the one of the movies that I enjoyed the most this year um, was the the Borat sequel that really just because it it came out of nowhere. I feel like we kind of found out that it was happening like two weeks before it came out, which is not something that normally happens. Um, and there were sort of rumblings that something was in the works. Like I remember when there was that video that came out earlier in the summer of Sasha Baron Cohen performing this crazy song at the uh, militia event in Oregon. Everyone knew it was him. And I sort of thought it was for a second season of Who is America? Because he was in this weird disguise. And there really was no indication that it was Borat at that point. But then um, they we soon found out that that's what that was. But really, the the surprise and the, the revelation for me in the movie was uh, Maria Bakalova as his daughter, just because it's the degree of difficulty for what she had to do in this movie is is kind of unbelievable. Like he's been doing this stuff where he goes out and interacts with real people and these kind of pranks for like 20 years. And she just came in out of nowhere and was able to really match him in the movie and and be as funny as him in a lot of ways. Um, so that really blew me away. Um, you know, all the uh, the Rudy Giuliani stuff aside as its own its own thing that that blew up and the degree of difficulty in in doing that uh, specifically. But what do you think of of her performance in this movie? I mean, the abortion scene alone makes the whole movie worth yeah. watching, right? Like <laughs> yeah. it's just <laughs> you're spending this whole scene talking about a plastic baby, right? That she ate, I think, yeah. is how it happened. Yeah. And so then they're like, we got to get this. And then, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then they're in the abortion clinic being like, we have to get the baby out. They're getting counseled by this uh, anti-abortion guy, I think. And he's just trying to convince her not to, uh, quote unquote, abort this plastic baby. I have a baby inside me mm-hmm. and I want to take it out of me. Mm-hmm. Right. She want it out now, please. Right. I Can mean, you take it out? No, we cannot. What you say, take it out. Yes. You end that life. That, that life will die. It's already dead. It's not living. No. It is a living, breathing life that God has created. I don't think he's breathing. We can show you that it's breathing. I feel bad because I was the one who put the baby in her. You don't need to feel bad. I was just trying to give my daughter pleasure, and next thing I know, there is a baby inside her. Mm-hmm. You keep calling her your daughter. Yes. Okay. Is he your father? Yes. 
This yes. is your daughter. Yes. Okay. That alone was worth it. But then you add in scenes like at the uh, the sort of debutante event down yes. in the South uh, the, where she does the, this the crazy dance, this ridiculous choreographed dance where she's flashing her, you know, was it just her vagina or was it period underwear? I it can't was, even yeah, it was, it was bloody underwear for sure. Right, 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 right. And I just, you know, <laughs> scenes like that, you know, to be willing to sort of go that hard in, especially in sort of an American debut, it's really commendable. And it's like you said, I mean, the Rudy Giuliani scene alone, if we want to talk about sort of the technique that Sasha has been honing for all of these years and that she apparently is just great at straight out the gate make of it what you will whether whatever you think he was doing in that scene the fact that she was able to facilitate all of those camera shots and facilitate everything unfolding the way it did is a skill in and of itself yeah and just like she and i think there's the other thing is just like i would love to see more of this footage that they apparently have because things started trickling out after the movie like she infiltrated the white house at one point she was like there's photos of her with don jr there's like all this stuff that happened that didn't make it in the movie. And he, that's like his, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen's like very exacting about what he, like he has a very high bar for what he does, I think. And he only, you know, there's so many things he's done over the years that we'll just never see because he just thinks it's like not perfect enough. But in this case, I would love to see some of this. I, I wonder if they'll ever release any of the other footage of her in all these weird situations and, and, you know, with like Kaylee McEnany and in the white house. And it's, it's crazy that she, she kind of really became this person for quite a while, this, uh, you know, conservative reporter just in order to get into Rudy Giuliani. But I mean, also, of course it was John Jr. Who took a photo with this prankster, yeah. right? Like yeah. just, of course <laughs> he would be the one to get punked like I that. I guess maybe that's not the degree of difficulty on that one specifically is not as hard. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's like, it is difficult. It's just so priceless to me that of all the people that she was like, of all the people it happened to, of course, it was Don Jr. But I mean, it's really true. And I'm really curious as well to see sort of what ancillary material comes out of this. Although I do think sort of part of the mystique can be keeping all of that just close to the vest, because the more you reveal sort of, you know, the more you're revealing the magic, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, definitely. It'll be interesting to see who else they pranked slash potentially are able to prank in the future. I know. And and another one with her, like, what is she going to do next? How do you follow this in your career? Like, you're, you're like I don't know. How, I mean, is she just going to be like a regular actor now? Or what, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, I gotta believe her manager is sitting there uh, with a vision board trying to figure it out. It's really interesting sort of starting point, right? Because it is one of such high skill, but it's also such a specific skill. Uh yeah, I really, I'm not sure. Do you have any theories on this? No, and it's, it's. she was like, they, when they first announced the movies, she like, they also like didn't release her name at first. And like, I think she was using a fake name. And so I didn't even know if she was like a real person at first um, or where she came from. And I, I thought maybe they were trying to hide something there, but I think, I don't know what that was about, but they, but it's just, it's crazy. I don't know. I don't know what's, what's going to happen with her, but I think she'll, she'll definitely get some, some opportunities out of this as well. I mean, she better, it would be a enormous, an enormous waste of talent if, you know, she did this and then just d disappeared off into the ether. I think we have to see more of her, whether it's with Sacha Baron Cohen or in another context. Yeah. And Sacha Baron Cohen has been pushing her for a uh, best supporting actress at the Oscars, which, uh, I think, I think, in, a, in this year specifically where there's sort of less movies overall maybe it could happen i mean honestly why the hell not i have some doubt that the academy will go there but 
I'd love to see it. (laughs) You never know. Comedy never gets its due at the Oscars, but maybe this is the year. Maybe. So let's go to your number three. I had mentioned earlier, I hate Susie. And I really do want to shout out Billy Piper as my number three. I think this show is so incredible in so many ways. I mean, first of all, it reminded me... (laughs) multiple times as I was watching of uncut gems in the sense that it is both (laughs) extremely stressful, but deeply funny. And it's sort of interesting because it sort of plays with or seems to play with consciously these autobiographical points in Billy Piper's career. You know, she was in Doctor Who and in the show, she's this big sci-fi star. She came up through this like pop uh, singing uh, competition. And in her real life, she came up as a pop singer. So there's these interesting points that seem like parallels. But when I talked to her, she made pretty clear that that wasn't sort of the intention. It just sort of happened that way. The idea is to make her famous, to get into some of these broader topics. Because what happens to her character is that she has risque photos leaked of an affair she's having, which is very obviously a fair because not to get too deep into it but basically (laughs) that penis is very clearly not one that belongs to her husband yes yes, yeah and so throughout this series which is structured around the sort of stages of anger right working toward acceptance uh although she adds a few denial yeah bargaining right but her performance throughout is just so stunning not only in terms of how raw it is but also in terms of just how broad it gets like she uses her music like she breaks into a musical number she my favorite part of the whole show is when she just leaves this rehearsal completely fed up with this pretentious director singing the words fuck you on this long (laughs) beautiful melisma and it's just it's like i said i think there's a catharsis in watching this even in the moments where it is far more wrenching than funny it doesn't feel like category fraud to call it a comedy, right? I think at its center, that is the purpose. Yeah, it's, even if it is like the most cringy of comedy that you could possibly get. It's like if you think, if you squirm during something like Curb Your Enthusiasm, like this is, you're, you're not gonna be able to handle this. I mean, literally the entire first episode is just her trying to collect all the phones and sources of internet in her (laughs) house so that nobody finds out what they will inevitably discover, which is that she clearly cheated on her husband and there's photos of it everywhere. Yeah, no, yeah, it's a great show. I haven't haven't made my way through all of it yet because it's like I can only take it in small doses, but but I'm going to get there, I think. I'm a chaotic baby and I just watched that whole (laughs) thing. I that's, just sat that's down. That's brave. And, that is brave. I mean, I just I couldn't look away. It's, it's such a cliche, right? Yeah. But that really was how the I train felt. Wreck. I was, I was like, I gotta see what happened. And the other thing, I have to just say, whoever came up with the idea to name her Susie Pickles, like <laughs> praise. Uh, it's such a ridiculous but perfect name. It's so childlike, but also, I mean, as Billy mentioned to me, like she's always in a pickle, so it's just this, like winking on the nose. It's just it's a perfectly chosen name, I think. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. <laughs> so going to my number three, uh, this is the, I would say, the, the stand-up special and I've watched a lot of them this year that really in parts made me laugh harder than anything else. And that's uh, Sam J three in the morning on Netflix. So Sam J was one of our very first guests on this podcast last year. I interviewed her at South by Southwest and it was after I saw her perform live there and was just like, she just killed in this room at South by Southwest. And I was like, I have to talk to this person. And I will admit it's it's an early episode. I feel like it was a little bit before I knew what I was doing. So, you know, revisit it at your peril. But she she was she's she's so funny. She's a writer for SNL and then really has broken out this year as a stand-up as well. And the one bit that I want to shout out that really made me laugh is she does this whole thing about Elon Musk going to space. This nigga Elon Musk be going to space by himself. What the fuck is that white man doing in space alone? That's not suspicious to anybody but me. That this motherfucker goes to space without the government, without NASA, which I didn't even know you could fucking do. As far as I knew, they were the space niggas. They run space. You want to fuck with space, you got to fuck with them. This motherfucker built a spaceship like it's a go-kart goes on Tuesdays. Bitch, space day is Saturday! Everybody know that! You can't leave midweek to go to goddamn space! It's an event, it happens Saturday, the TV's on, this nigga be going Wednesday night. What? From Sacramento at that, bitch, space place is Cape Canaveral, that's where you go from. Ain't no entry point to Mars from fucking Sacramento. I know you had a, a slightly different reaction to the special, so I wanted to give you a chance to talk about it as well. <laughs> I mean, I'm really torn about it, right? Because like you said, that bit and other bits, like I think in general, sort of her material on the audacity of white people is just very funny. Like she has this other really great bit about sort of white women co-opting feminism for branding purposes. And I think all of that is very true and very good comedy. And I think... She had this other one about uh, preppers, like, what are you preparing for? Yeah. White people <laughs> yeah. move in these weird ways. And I'm like, all of this is very, very funny. It took a turn for me. She, I can't remember what she sort of transi transitions from to get into this conversation, but she starts talking about trans people. And particularly, she mentions this uh, friend who she kind of characterizes as a, you know, not versed in this stuff, kind of ignorant, who I guess asks her, like, quote, what happens when trans bitches start beating up regular bitches? And she's like, I don't know. And it then trans it moves into this bit where she's discussing trans people in this very uncomfortable way where on one hand, she's emphasizing like trans women are women, anybody who thinks otherwise is goofy. But on the other, she's mentioning things like how tall trans people are, like trans women are, and like how they have big hands. And these are all very especially the hands thing that is a very sort of specifically transphobic yeah stereotype talking or, point yeah. and it's you know a fixation that unfortunately is still endemic to 
transphobic discussions. And it's a little disappointing, given the sharpness of the other material, to see her essentially move into this low-hanging fruit zone that we've all seen a thousand times. And I think she puts her own spin on it, right, toward the end where she says, but actually trans women are our, are our X-Men. We should be... But even that feels othering, right? Yeah, it's trans women are women, but also they're <laughs> literal mutants. Like what? It doesn't, I feel like I get the intention and it's not, you know, I get the intention. It just really rubbed me the wrong way. And I feel like if you're a cisgender person telling a joke about trans people, if you're making trans people and their transness the punchline rather than the idiots who are still uncomfortable about them, they're the real source of tension, right? Like if we want to talk about comedy as a study in tension, transphobes are the source of the tension. And I feel like the rub for me becomes when you have cis comedians still discussing trans people as the source of the tension. I mean, even just the basis of the joke, the idea of a trans woman beating up a cis woman, trans people are the ones who experience violence at disproportionate rates. So just the whole... The whole joke just felt very strange to me, and I didn't quite understand why it was there, why we needed it. I really could have done without it. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think maybe it didn't rub me the wrong way in quite as much as some of you know the things that have come from male comedians like Dave Chappelle or Ricky Gervais, and in, in the sense that you know because maybe it's coming from a gay woman. Um, but you're, I think you're totally right, and I think she's a challenging comedian in the sense that I think she she's she's risky comedian and really goes for it. I think it it creates some really high highs and then some some low lows as well because she she's she definitely does not play it safe in this special. Yeah, and I think that's sort of part of her brand, right? Like she's sort of this like middle ground. And I think it's interesting you point out sort of the Chappelle's and Gervaises of the world because again, where they diverge, I think, is that Chappelle and Gervais tell the jokes and then just stop at trans people are weird, quote unquote. Whereas Sam pivots from this spot to then again, like trans people are X-Men. So you can see the intention is somewhat different. I She's just at think least that trying the, to do a turn. <laughs> right. I just feel like functionally, it's not the distinction that she feels it is, at least for me. Well, I feel like we're going to have a very sharp turn to your number two. Um, in in this sense so Uh, go ahead what do you mean Dan Levy super controversial pick (laughs) Um, it's a very obvious choice but Dan Levy Schitt's Creek is my number two I feel like I don't need to describe the appeal too much given that Schitt's Creek completely swept the Emmys to the point where Dan at one point literally said oh this is when Twitter turns on me Uh, this is when it happens (laughs) I mean Uh, it was it was like a little ridiculous I'm a big fan of the show as well but like at a certain point I was like how is this happening Yeah, no, I mean, I think we can all agree it deserved a lot of awards. Perhaps there were other shows that could have taken some of the wealth a little bit, a little bit. Come on. But I mean, the thing that I found so satisfying about his performance this season in particular is it really I mean, first of all, this season sort of gave everybody in the Rose family sort of a satisfying arc and Stevie, who functionally is part of the Rose family at this point. But and I think David's real lesson this season was learning he has nothing to prove, right? Like he spent the entire show sort of wistfully thinking about his New York life and these New York friends who really didn't care about him. And we've always known that, but he hasn't always fully processed it. 
But there's this wonderful moment where he's sitting on the car with Stevie looking at this house that is husband-to-be has offered to buy them. And there's just this great exchange where Stevie is basically like, you won. You have nothing to prove these people. But he's just still afraid of being a failure. But I think a lot of the source of David's uh, comedy throughout the show has been his anxiety, his sort of fears. Even in season, going all the way back to season one, you know, Jocelyn's like, when he said it was someone precious, I knew it was you. Like he's just (laughs) depicted this sort of anxious, fragile person, which I think we can all sort of, you know, there's that in all of us, that sort of touchy, I want things this way, I need to be in control. But I think in a lot of ways, this season helped him move through and past that a little bit. Uh, You know, he's still going to be David Rose. He's still going to be very high strung. But I think Sort of as a viewer, it's nice to see like, oh, okay, he's finding a place where he's found a place where he feels safe. He's found a place where he feels accepted. But then beyond all of the sort of meaningfulness of it all, going back to the comedy, I mean, there's just so many great scenes. Like he's in there with Catherine O'Hara and they're doing the wine tasting at Herb Ertlinger's fruit winery. That's a great episode. Just getting completely drunk. And he's yelling at Herb that he wants the radish flavor, even though there (laughs) is no radish flavor. Here is to being able to share the perks of the industry with you. Salute. Cheers. Oh, I had my reservations about banana. Um, that's the strawberry peach. Oh dear, it tastes like amoxicillin. This one's burning my throat. These are terrible. Well, we have to pick one, David. Do we? You really want people associating your name with this? Laundry detergent? I would never sell this at my store. Okay, enough. (laughs) Now I'm getting notes of tomato. You know, the bedwetting, the stress over the wedding day, having rain, just all of it, I think. The entire cast really killed it. Yeah, the show is such an achievement, and especially for him, who was like the, you know, created it, um, you know, with his father, but was clearly the driving force behind the show from the beginning, I think, and... Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's a it's a really it's a really great show, and I think it evolved over the time, and it had that great thing that happens to some shows where like nobody's watching it at the beginning, and by the end, it's winning all the Emmys, which is really you can't ask for anything much more than that. As opposed to the other trajectory where shows start out really hot and then just get terrible by the end. Can't ask for better advertising for Netflix effect than that, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pop TV, I don't know, but Netflix is, people are paying attention. (laughs) I'm convinced like the Netflix execs throughout this, even though it's not their show, we're just popping champagne. Like we are going to get so much more (laughs) material now. Exactly. So my number two I want to talk about is someone who I uh, had on the podcast for the second time this year because I'm so obsessed with him. And that's Jordan Klepper from The Daily Show who is not even officially a Daily Show correspondent anymore full-time. He's just pops in from time to time. And he's done it this year in this fascinating way where he is like one of the only people going out and doing comedy in the world, maybe besides from uh, Sasha Baron Cohen and Maria Bakalova, uh, in this COVID era where he was going to Trump rallies during COVID and talking to people, which talk about risky comedy. I would say that's about as risky as it gets. And... I think he was able to really create some of the most simultaneously funny and illuminating and compelling political comedy of the year by engaging with these people in a way that no one else was. Like everyone's joking about Trump, everyone's joking about Trump supporters, Trump's the people who, the Republicans who support him, the voters who support him. And Jordan Klepper was going out and talking to these people and really exposing how little they know about what 
Trump is doing, what he stands for, and how much they ignored COVID, which became a big story as well. And he was really putting his life on the line to do it, which was incredible. Um, so that he that really stood out to me. And I think he, you know, he knew what he was doing and knew that he was taking a risk and and did it anyway and you know it, it's just it was it was remarkable the pieces that he was able to put together i think he has always been so good at field work like i think that's really and i think he knows that he's really one of the all-timers right yeah. and i think like especially sort of in the wake of the opposition ending and then i'm blanking on the title of it but then the show that he followed it with that was it was just called clepper yeah that's right yeah mm-hmm. and he just literally would take his team into the field like into the swamp sometimes yeah there just was like, one yeah where he was like almost sunk on a boat right right he got gout at one point i remember him <laughs> telling me like it just you know i think his field work is so phenomenal and you're right i think this year has really especially because sort of the playing field is narrowed because not everybody is willing to put themselves on the line to that degree. There's been even less sort of noise to drown out anything that he's doing. Like the Million Maga March section uh, segment is the one that I think about immediately when you mentioned Jordan Klepper this year. Like just even down to when the woman's like, I'll tell you one thing. And then she starts talking, I'll give you one word. And then she starts talking, he's like, that's one, two, three, 10 words. Does anyone here know how to count? Like, it's just, he's the king of that sort of idea of just handing someone a rope and letting them do the work themselves. He's so good at that. Are you guys the liberal media? I have one word for you. You are controlled by the deep state. That's like four, four five, six government. words, 10 words. That's even two. That one's even two. Push the fake news. Two words. That's two. That's two words. Can no one in the MAGA world count? I mean, he was. It was also like one of the only bits like this this year where if, every time a new one came out, like I had to watch it the second it came out because I just knew it was going to be good and that everyone was going to be talking about it. So yeah, he's he's unbelievable and he's had a tough road with the opposition, which I thought was a great show, getting canceled, and then he did this sort of like one-off series, like you said, Klepper, where he's out in the field, and that didn't really go anywhere. So I hope that people are finally recognizing him as well and he'll get some more opportunities. I don't know whether it's at Comedy Central or not, but um, to do to do something because he is clearly a huge talent. I, like you, am in that little club. I also really liked The Opposition and really wished it had had more time to sort of elaborate on its premise. Yeah, but... it's a show that it's like, it was like the his version of The Colbert Report, which, you know, got nine years to develop and was not, you know, it was, it was really good right off the bat, but it wasn't, it, it took time to, to get great. And they didn't give him that time, which was, which was a bummer. Yeah. Hopefully he does get sort of, a, I really would love for more people to sort of see and appreciate just again, his phenomenal skill with field work and really getting these, it's a hard, it's a lot harder than I think some people think it is to get people to expose themselves as idiots in the way that he does. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. We've, we've arrived at, at your number one. Speaking of idiots. So, <laughs> <laughs> So the great, you've got Emperor Peter, Nicholas Holt playing Emperor Peter. This, again, I'm a mark for doofy characters. (laughs) And Peter is so doofy. On one hand, he's this, you know, he's the literal emperor of Russia. But he also is just completely incapable of, he doesn't know how to do military planning. He doesn't know how to do basically anything. Everybody gets these superlatives, right? Like Ivan the Terrible. Or, you know, Peter the Great is his father. 
And he doesn't have one because he is so utterly unremarkable. Because he has no skills. Literally no skills, no specializations. And, you know, then uh, Elle Fanning shows up as Catherine, who becomes Catherine the Great after his death. Was she the cause of it? Who knows? (laughs) But, uh, you know, throughout the season, I think Nicholas Holt is really, it's really sort of the culmination of this theme of his career where he plays these assholes and weirdos. Like, I'm thinking of sort of even going all the way back to Skins, one of his really early projects. He plays Tony, who in the first season is just this manipulative teen And then in the second season sort of endures this trauma that then leads him to become more vulnerable. Or I'm thinking of like Warm Bodies, which is a zombie rom-com, you know, or the most obvious reference would be The Favorite, where he's playing sort of a version of Peter in the sense that he's sort of this pompous man of court, which I should note that both The Favorite and The Great share a writer. And a sensibility. And they're, yeah, they're very similar in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And as somebody who loved The Favorite, I mean, the opportunity to basically watch watch this concept, but, you know, longer. 10 hours. (laughs) How can I say no? But I mean, even thinking of that, like, you know, he went so... He got so into it in Mad Max when he's playing Nux, this sort yes. of spraying his face with chrome, shouting about, I'm going to Valhalla. Like, he's just, he's perfect. And yeah. I think... He really goes for it. Right. And I think in The Great, you sort of see all of these things come together. You see sort of this guy who wants to be manipulative, but is too stupid to be manipulative. You see this weirdo who doesn't even fit in in his own court and doesn't have respect behind his back. You know, just all of the things that he has sort of played around with for much of his career, I think, came together in this show. And also just the incessant shouting of like, huzzah, it never got old to me. It really didn't. The fact that he pronounces touche, touche. I mean, it's just, it's perfect. It's perfect. I could go out all day. I think I was angry because no one has ever not liked me. Or at least they're pretending to. Touche. What? Touche. Do you mean touche? What is it? Not touche. No. Touche. See? That's great. How smart you are. Point is, it's a new day. He's wonderful. All right, but we have to get to my number one, which is someone who really just has impressed me all year long, and that's Chloe Feynman on Saturday Night Live. And I have a lot of strong feelings about SNL, as anyone who listens to this show will know, because I ask everyone about it, and I'm kind of obsessed. And this was a very weird year for SNL, um, starting with the the SNL at home shows where everyone was just taping bits from their house during the early days of quarantine. And then they sort of came back against the odds this fall and have been doing this weird thing where they're paying their audience to get around the, rest- the New York restrictions of having an audience, live audience. So the audience are now paid uh, actors on the show is strange and but chloe Feynman throughout the whole throughout all of it has just been i think unbelievable and she's a pretty you know new breakout star on the show and she's an incredible impressionist um i think her drew barrymore is the one that really took off the most and then she you know did it with went on drew barrymore's new talk show and did it with her um and she's just she's she's so funny the 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 two th- sketches that really stand out to me is one is from the at home shows where she did uh this Airbnb sketch where she plays both the host and the guest of an Airbnb. And the guest is a a insane Swedish woman who is stuck there during quarantine. And it's just, it's like, you can tell she filmed the entire thing basically by herself, maybe with like one person helping her at home playing both characters. And it's like the kind of thing that never probably would have gotten on SNL in any other 
way when they were doing the show the way it's normally done. But the fact that she was able to pull that off during quarantine was was so impressive. And that really stood out to me. And the more recent one that really got me was her the debut of her Tiffany Trump impression, which uh, was off the wall and bananas, but also just like so perfect. It doesn't look like Ivanka. No, unfortunately, Ivanka... Doesn't like us. Yeah. No, I was going to say it's busy, uh, so we brought our other sister, Tiffany. (laughs) Happy birthday to me! (laughs) Hi, Colin. Hi, Tiffany. I see you're still celebrating your birthday, even though you got some flack in the press. Look, I'm just trying to be a relatable millennial, Colin. But yeah, the media got all butthurt because I was partying maskless in Miami with the first 20 randos to slide in my DMs. (laughs) But I mean, I'm a stepchild named Tiffany. It's kind of my job to get faded in South Beach. (laughs) No, she's kidding, Colin. But she's done a lot of them, and she did this past week, as we're talking, she did Nicole Kidman from The Undoing, which was pretty funny. And she's doing, uh, we're talking before the Timothy Chalamet episode airs, but I have a strong feeling she's going to do Timothy Chalamet with Timothy Chalamet because she does a ridiculous impression of him as well. So she's just like, she's just really impressed me this year. Um, is there any any ones that I missed that you uh, that you like of hers? I just have to second Timothy Chalamet. Is the Timothy Chalamet <laughs> impression really got me when he st- uh, when she starts being like, I just have all these hoodies. They're all navy blue. Like it was just, <laughs> it was all perfect. And then I think in that video, she also. In the masterclass segment, she also did an impression of Carol Baskin. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, this sort of dead-eyed smile biking around her neighborhood in this long wig uh, that I thought was pretty funny. And actually, I think uh, managed to make it to Carol Baskin, who was very mad about it. I think she had oh, said that yeah. she would. I think she said like she could slap her over it. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, Usually people are gracious about SNL impressions and talk about how much they love them. Like even this week, uh, Melissa Carone was talking about how much she loves Cecily Strong's impression of her. That's the crazy woman from the Rudy uh, hearing for anyone who didn't see that. But Right. No, I think her Jojo Siwa was also, as somebody who like still is trying, I feel so old trying to figure out what Jojo Siwa, like I know she's from Dance Moms, I think, but like I just completely... Yeah, that one goes over my head, I have to admit too, but... But, but like it just, it's funny because even even as somebody who has no idea really what this girl's deal is, like the impression still worked yeah, for me. She manages to be funny in pretty much any impression that she does, which is which is impressive. Yeah, I mean, I think there are so many impressions that are reliant on context, I guess is sort of what I was getting at indirectly. Like it just, you know... The cool thing about her impressions and a lot of the sort of great SNL impressions is that even if you're watching them without zero with zero context, it's still funny. Like thinking back to the really good political impressions, like I remember laughing them at them as a kid who had zero idea what was going on because sort of outside of whatever the context is, an impression can still be funny. Yeah. And I totally. think really she has a really keen sense of how to do that. Yeah. No, she's she's really great. And there's there's a lot of good people on that show right now. It's has not been the most consistent i would say this fall with the political stuff um but she usually stands out the the jim carrey as we mentioned at the beginning uh was has been tough and we'll see it's been a little rough (laughs) i'm i'll be really curious to see if they are keeping him around i'm i'm guessing and hoping not but who knows they kept around for four years so woody harrelson's agent waiting by the phone yeah yeah, I feel like he's like I don't want to do that either. Probably, like he's like chilling in Hawaii, being like 
no thanks. Being Woody Harrelson. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I would like in general for them to give the, the cast of that show more opportunities. And I think she's a good example of what happens when you do that. For sure. I think in general, that's sort of been one of the, I think that's been one of the sort of consistent critiques of SNL sort of in the Trump era is this focus on giving the celebrity guests all the meeting meaty roles, uh, which I agree, I think shortchanges a cast that's more than up to the task. Yeah. And now the president and the vice president will be celebrities who are not part of the cast with my Rudolph too. But so we'll see what happens there, but who knows? Um, I'm also excited. Chloe Feynman is in Search Party, uh, which is another show that I love. And she was in it a little bit in season three. And I I believe she's going to be in more of season four as this sort of Megyn Kelly Tommy Laren kind of conservative host who uh, who co-hosts a show with uh, John Early's character, um, which I think has a lot of potential as well. Yeah, for sure. Now you're also reminding me that she uh, she did that great impersonation of what was her name? Paulette at the oh, town, yeah. the Trump oh, town yeah. hall. I was like, I love your smile. Like that was another she just it's it's like you said, she, she knocks it out of the park every time. So I, I agree. It'll be interesting to see what she's able to do with the sort of Megan Kelly, Tommy Laren mold. Yeah, totally. I'm yeah, I'm excited for for everything she's doing next and um and yeah, I think uh where SNL goes from here, who knows. It's always it's always interesting though. Always interesting, always a ride, always live from New York. <laughs> yes. So that's it. That's our those are our lists. Um so as I said, we have we did top 10s, which we're not going to tell you about our the rest of our top 10s, but you can uh, visit the the link in the description for this podcast to see that and we'll also put video clips from all of these on there and so please do go check that out as well. So yeah, we'll uh this is our this is our last new episode of the year and we're going to be reposting one of my favorite episodes from this past year next week and then we'll be back with some really exciting new guests in the new year and uh Laura, maybe you'll come back at some point too and we can talk more comedy. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd love to. This was a blast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.